the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a pleasant, pleasant good afternoon to you. It is five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. It is a Tuesday, the 11th of December. And now that we've caught you up on all the material facts, we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Hey, coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be visiting with talk show host Joyce Cordy, founder and president of Reimagine America. Um, We continue to see all this volatility going on on Wall Street, a lot of it seemingly connected to everything from Trump's tweets to tariffs to discussion of potentially shutting down the government in relationship to funding for the mortar wall. So um, all of this is, um, you know, kind of kind of putting a bit of a pale on your retirement funds as we slip out of 2018. We'll talk a bit about that. We'll talk also a bit about the Mueller investigation and the search on for a new White House chief of staff as Senator Kelly prepares to depart at year's end. All that plus California under Governor Gavin. All that and more coming up later on in this hour. Also, we're going to have best-selling author and Christian apologist Dr. Alex McFarland drop by for a brief visit. He's going to give us an update on an interesting case in Omaha, Nebraska, where the elementary school principal there basically put a ban on Christmas all the way across the board, even saying that you couldn't have the kids bring candy canes to School because the candy cane, when inverted, looks like a J for Jesus. (laughs) Sounds like a case for my first guest tonight. He is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, great to have you on. Oh, it's great to be on the program. Hey, what about this nonsense? You know, every year it seems to kind of raise its ugly head. I know we talked about this last week in relationship to uh, municipalities that try to put prohibitions on um, displaying, uh, you know, religious uh, articles during uh, Christmas, uh, be it uh, a manger scene, things of this sort. Public schools, I mean, the kids, are they forbidden, actually, from singing a Christmas carol or anything other than jingle bells? What, what, what does the law have to say about that in relationship to the ability of a child during the time of the year that's still technically on the books is the holiday called Christmas. What exactly does the law have to say about prohibitions in relationship to uh, the Christmas holidays in public schools? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and the answer was actually uh, resolved in a, in a case out of California a number of years ago where the court held that, uh, that public schools uh, cannot just ban prohibit uh, all you know, religious music. He says because um, songs that may have religious uh, backgrounds uh, are very much a part of American history and heritage. So, so students can sing in a, in a, in a classroom. Uh, they can sing uh, Silent Night along with Jingle Bells. Uh, that's legal. There's nothing unconstitutional about 
uh, re- re- uh, acknowledging a holiday, and uh, especially a holiday of such great cultural significance as Christmas. All right, good to know. Let's pivot to another topic, and and it's interesting. When I first read this story, I thought, isn't this reverse? Because typically uh, what we really see is a problem um, with the over-utilization of college and university campuses for indoctrination of, um, let's face it, liberal viewpoints. Anything that seems to be uh, from the far, far left seems to be the word of the day. And uh, so I I thought it was an interesting story to see uh, what's happened at Moreno Valley College where a man there who at one time had even been named a member of the faculty of the year um, was harassed not because he was presenting, the, and maybe that's the problem, not because he was presenting the, the standard um, liberal viewpoint, but rather introduced into the subject matter, into discussions, some conservative worldview, essentially, I think, to help encourage students to, to be able to give an answer for their opinions and viewpoints. And uh, boy, did this guy pay a heavy price for doing that? Oh, he certainly did. In fact, he was twice uh, recognized for out- being an outstanding uh, professor of the year, teacher of the year there at the, uh, at the college. Uh, and he had tenure and was doing great. But uh, when it came time to the subject of same-sex marriage, and it was at that time pending before the Supreme Court, it was a very hot issue, of course, uh, he went, went ahead and uh, having a sociology class, Uh, decided to bring in both perspectives. The fact that he brought in both perspectives, that was was totally horrific to the establishment there at that college, and they uh, fired him. They didn't just reprimand. They fired him, terminated him, and they they thought they were totally justified because he was not pulling the far-left dialogue and instead was promoting, heaven forbid, critical thinking and an open marketplace of ideas. Hmm. Yeah, the the uh, the major paradigm shift here, but we used to teach or send our kids to school to be taught how to think, and now instead they're being sent to school to learn what to think. Right, and it's only one viewpoint, which is very, very dangerous in a free society. And, and you would think at a level, and this is what's so intellectually dishonest about the, the liberal left agenda, and that is you would think that you would want students, if they genuinely embrace a particular idea or the ideology, to be able to argue the point, to be able to uh, demonstrably, demonstrably um, give reasons as to how they drew this conclusion or why they believe, essentially to be able to, to defend their, their position. I mean, politicians have to do it all the time, uh, so why not children learn how to do that? But apparently there, there seems to be a, 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 almost a, um, uh, a, an incubator here of liberal ideology taking place in public high schools and certainly at the university and college level. And they're fearful of anybody coming in and potentially invading that or interjecting, uh, injecting different ideas. It's exactly right. And, uh, and in so doing, they're purging. This is not isolated. They're, they're purging professors like him across the country. Uh, the far left has taken a, um, a, a much stronger, historically the strongest uh, influence that they've ever had in public universities and public colleges, and even a lot of private colleges, for that matter, as we've seen with Yale and Harvard and, and others. So uh, it's it's very concerning, and, and parents are putting their sending their kids to college universities. 
In this case, we're dealing with a junior college, a community college, whether it's that or it's, you know, the high end, whatever it is. Parents need to realize they're not just learning academia. Um, they, are, they are being taught a particular worldview from a very uh, narrow-minded perspective of a kind of, uh, with uh, professors with that perspective. And that's, uh, that's why it's so important for us to defend professors like we did so successfully, uh, you know, there at Moreno Valley. And in this case, apparently, um, they had, uh, they took the case to um, a uh, to mediation, and apparently the conclusion was that much of what you're doing here is patently, blatantly unfair. <laughs> yes, it was fantastic. It, you know, our, the attorney heading this up for Pacific Justice, to Michael Pepper, did a great job. Uh, this was like about uh, two weeks, the equivalent of a two-week trial. This arbitration hearing was equivalent of a two-week trial, and it was a lot of work, a lot of witnesses. At the end of the day, the conclusion was. Um, this professor should not have been fired. He was wrongfully treated. Give him his job back. But wouldn't you know that this college still hasn't learned its lesson? And they have decided they're going to appeal this, <laughs> this arbitration decision. And, of course, we at Pacific Justice Institute are ready for it. But it's, it's just a shame that, that the, they still haven't learned. They still don't get it, that um, this kind of a, of a very dangerous, uh, isolated uh, censorship mentality um, is, is, is something that should not uh, be in our universities and colleges. They don't get it, and they're ready to double down, and we're ready to, 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 uh, to face them. Ready to respond in kind. Love it. Well, we appreciate the, uh, the update on this case and uh, wish you continued success. Unbelievable. You know, again, you'd think at the very least they would not be threatened by, uh, you know, opposing ideas. I mean, isn't that what they're supposed to do? Uh, colleges and universities debate and engage in the give and take. And, you know, I, I guess from a scriptural standpoint, theological standpoint, we refer to this as iron sharpening iron, but apparently there's fear of that. What, maybe because the kids may draw a different conclusion? I mean, I think that's the logical direction that all this takes us in, isn't it? Our thanks to Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information on the web at pji.org. All right, 515, and that means time for a look at traffic. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I want to come back to a story that we alluded to um, a few minutes ago, and that is the, the ongoing attack and assault on Christmas. Now, uh, there was a lot of talk about this agenda during the presidential campaigns of two years ago, and uh, it, it continues to rear its ugly head in sometimes blatant ways and sometimes uh, more subtle ways. Uh, but, but clearly there is a concerted effort to try and sanitize the time of the year that we call, that we know as, that is officially stamped as Christmas into anything else but. So it becomes winter solstice, it's winter break, it's any imaginable name but Christmas itself. And I'm convinced that there's a lot of um, anti-religious bias at play here. Witness, for example, the case in Omaha, Nebraska, where off the rails, I think, is probably the most appropriate definition for what a elementary school principal did there in sending a memo out banning all things Christmas, even going as far as saying, well, 
you know, even candy canes, those can be dangerous. Because if you turn it upside down, it looks like a J for Jesus. <laughs> Let's take this story a bit deeper. We're joined now by the Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, and one of the best Christian apologists in America today, Dr. Alex McFarland. And Dr. McFarland, may I irritate all the liberals out there by wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Oh, thank you so much, man. It's an honor to be on, and thank you for that gracious introduction. And yes, let's rankle uh, the secularists and say Merry Christmas, and may you and all of your listeners have a, a joyous, Jesus-filled Christmas season. You know, it's interesting. There, there's battle lines kind of drawn on, on two sides of this equation. I've heard some ultra-conservative Christians say, well, you know, we really shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. After all, December 25th isn't actually Jesus's birthday, and a lot of pagan symbolism has been co-opted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To me, I look at it as largely the church redeeming much of this, and any any opportunity that we can have to point us back to the manger. I mean, the, the manger certainly makes way for the cross, and I think to be reminded of this and, and the significance of this time of the year is particularly important. So I get disappointed when, when some Christians wish to, to dispense with anything uh, related to Christmas, and worse so when the secularists out there wish to deny me the ability to uh, celebrate this time of year, or to somehow suggest that in our efforts towards sanitizing the public arena, that we don't dare expose children to something as innocuous as candy canes, really? Yeah, I, I know. I, I agree. I mean, the secularists are, are such a killjoy. I mean, besides, you know, their overt opposition to Christmas and Christ and, you know, heaven forbid that uh, candy cane makes us think of the letter J and the letter J makes us think of Jesus. You know, let's just ban J from the alphabet and uh, instead of, you know, uh, jump, we'll, we'll just have to have a soft J Tuesday will yump for joy rather than jump for joy because the letter J invokes Jesus. It's crazy. And, and of course, I know you've seen the articles, uh, Craig. Rudolph promotes bullying, body shaming. Um, it, you know, I, I've got to, I'm just going to say this. The social justice warriors have lost their mind. Well, moreover, I mean, they don't want to allow our kids to enjoy Christmas anymore. Kids, kids it, can't even be kids anymore. And, and hey, I want to be the, on your show. I want to call out that racist Nat King Cole for singing, quote, folks dressed up like Eskimos and the cultural uh, appropriation of the indigenous Alaskans. I mean, and the Jewish composer Irving Berlin, the, the latent racism in May All Your Christmases Be White. Come on, now, I know he was Jewish, but there's some supremacy under there, and so we're going to call him out. This thing called Christmas, but, you know, Craig, here's the thing. Um, we need to call out the one whose fault it really is, and it, it's God. I mean, I, I honestly think the social justice warriors, they would like to call out God because, you know, how dare he have Jesus be born in uh, Israel and therefore give implicit endorsement to Zionist claims to the Holy Land? Well, there's something very disingenuous about this. And, and, and to, to, to demonstrate my point, let me ask you a question with all, with all sincerity. Uh, you're you're an educated man. You're a learned man. Uh, you're considered, as I mentioned earlier, um, one of America's leading apologists. 
I, I, is it is it fair to say that you do not believe that little green Martians from Mars exist? Is that correct? I do not believe that Martians exist. Okay. No. So that being the case, how much time do you spend? You, you, of course, have a nationally syndicated radio show. You have speaking events. You go on tour across the country, lecturing and so forth. Do you, do you spend a lot of time um, convincing people or making your case, making the argument for uh, your belief in the non-existence of little green men or Martians? None whatsoever. Okay, then here's what I don't understand. So if if we have if we have concluded that you don't believe they exist, and it would not be worth your time to try to argue that something that you don't believe in in the first place exists, then why does it seem to me that so many atheists out there invest so much energy and 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 raw passion into trying to convince the world that God doesn't exist. I mean, I put it on the par with the little green men. I mean, I don't believe in little green men either, and I don't devote much of my life to talking about it because they simply don't exist. So if in the mind of the atheist, God doesn't exist, why during this time of the year do they have to take out billboards and buy advertisements on radio and go so far out of their way to try to convince us that this season means nothing, that Jesus is just a figment of our imagination, that God is an invention of mankind and not the other way around. I don't understand that. Well, it's like the line from Hamlet, uh, methinks thou protest too much. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, uh, and it's been my privilege to debate a lot of atheists and to, you know, frankly, you know, from the stage and in private, share Christ and explain the gospel to a lot of atheists. And, you know, the, the posture of many militant secularists is, is this, you know, there is no God, and I hate him, yeah. and he's evil. And, and let me say this to, to everyone out there that um, I know when you talk about American culture, very quickly they'll talk about the First Amendment. Um, hey, if you don't want to believe in God, um, you don't have to. Nobody's going to try to force you. There is no coercion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't want to believe in Jesus, I'm sorry for you, but nobody's going to try to make you believe in Jesus. But what we can't let the secularists do is dismantle the very foundation that our Declaration, Constitution, and Bill of Rights sits on, and that is the assumption that there is a God, there is objective morality, and moral boundaries, ethics, uh, moral truth is tied to the character of God. And so the uh, non-establishment of religion has, has been used as a billy club to banish all moral boundaries. And part of the reason that now even uh, the, the um, National Education Association, basically, basically the teachers' union that so many teachers have to be a part of, they're, they're saying that if you tell a little boy to act masculine, and you you say to a little girl you need to be a need to be a young lady that amounts to abuse part of the reason there's this gender confusion gender fluidity gender dysphoria the um acknowledge the endorsement really of homosexuality transgenderism abortion i mean we're in a state of moral anarchy is because we have let the 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 god haters and the militant secularists control the narrative for too long and uh, moms and dads, I want to say your kids, um, if they go to a public school, they do have constitutionally protected rights to religious expression. Um, if you're a principal or a public school administrator, you need to understand that you as a principal, you as a teacher, you do not, you do not have the right to silence the religious expression of young people and students. And, um, you know, I hate to, you know, kind of be a tough guy here, but 
uh, we're going to let our nation fall into the hands of communists or Sharia terrorists if we don't reassert the fact that this country was based on the Judeo-Christian worldview and it, the vacuum that's being created by the abolition of God, something will fill that vacuum. Socialism or Sharia. And to all, if anyone's listening, Craig, who happens to be an atheist and you hate Christmas and you don't want God in your life, fair enough. But um, in, in your quest to abolish Christianity from America, you're only creating a very dark future for yourself. See, Christianity is like gravity. It, you benefit from it even if you don't recognize it's there or don't even understand it. Um, one force alone is sufficient to hold at bay the iron fist of socialism or the iron sword of Sharia, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, the militant secularist, it would be in their best interest to, to at least tolerate God and Christianity because it gives them the freedom to safely, prosperously walk around as a non-believer. And, you know, particularly during this time of the year when, you know, it's an opportunity for us with people thinking about Christmas and and so forth to be able to share our faith and to, to have sometimes that, that open door that maybe other times of the year is not necessarily as wide open as it is uh, to take advantage of it. And again, I, I let me be clear to say I'm not suggesting that we have to be militant about this. And, you know, if, if somebody at the grocery store wishes you a happy holidays, you don't have to snap back and be nasty and say, well, I'm a Christian and I have to believe you have to say Merry Christmas. You can be kind about it. And in fact, we should be kind about it. But at the same token, not allow yourself to have uh, your rights as a person of faith trampled upon, or in the case here of the school principal out of Nebraska, to uh, hold, <laughs> just with, with a stroke of a pen, hand down an edict that, quite frankly, from beginning to end is blatantly unconstitutional. And it's too bad um, school principals don't understand more about the law than apparently they do. We appreciate some insights today on this important topic from Dr. Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert, director of the Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. More information available on the web at alexmcfarland.com. 5.30 from KFAX. We've got an update for you on traffic. Not as foggy out there tonight. That's good news. Let's find out what the ride home looks like. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 534 here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Wow, uh, it's been an interesting year, hasn't it? Certainly on Wall Street, we had a discussion uh, that you'll hear uh, later on in the week with our good buddy Phil Grandy from Phil's Gang uh, talking about the markets. Uh, it's been a raucous ride, to say the least, since January and fourth quarter this year, we don't even want to talk about it. Talk, of course, is probably a big part of the problem. Many are suggesting that much of the talk about tariffs and trade and shutting the government down and things of this sort are spooking the markets. And certainly the markets like stability. They like a sense of predictability. But the news these days is anything but that. In fact, it seems as if every time we turn around, be it out of Wall Street or out of Washington, D.C., there's a big surprise coming. Not least of which has been the news concerning the ongoing Mueller investigation, many of whom would have thought it would have wrapped up by now, and yet it seems to be 
the gift that keeps on giving, and uh, certainly one gift that perhaps uh, President Trump would consider to be more like a lump of coal in his stocking. Insights Now as we're joined by talk show host, the founder and president of Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And Joyce, always great to have you on the show. It's my pleasure. So let's talk first quickly about um, the whole Mueller investigation. We know that lawyers for former Trump campaign chief Paul Manafort um, have got uh, a couple of weeks now left to decide whether or not to challenge Mueller's claim that he lied to the Mueller, I'm sorry, that Manafort lied to prosecutors. So there's questions related to this. We've got indictments being handed down. Uh, This just seems to be, as I suggested in my opening remarks, the gift that keeps on giving. Is this thing ever going to wrap up? What's your sense as you read the tea leaves? Are we getting toward the end here? Is there going to be some big January surprise that Mr. Mr. Mueller is waiting until there's a, a Democrat majority in the House? What's going on? No, I don't think he's waiting for a Democrat majority in the House, um, because it's not the House that will be the problem if, indeed, uh, we're reading the tea leaves correctly. It'll be the Senate. Um, the, I, I, think, I think that the problem keeps, you know, the, the goal keeps shifting, because they think they've got all the information, and then something like Michael Cohn comes along, uh, who really knows uh, a great deal um, about what uh, President Trump was up to when he was the CEO of Trump Inc. And and new information comes to light. Okay, now they're looking back at others who were um, witnesses before the House and Senate Judiciary and Intelligence Committees to find out whether or not, drumbeat please, We have another case of obstruction that the Michael Cohn talking points that were circulated before his now confessed to be false testimony, whether or not other people took those talking points and also used them. That's not information that, um, or testimony that Mueller's people were exposed to until last week and just this afternoon. Manafort's lawyers walked into court and said, we need a month to decide if we can challenge the government's assertion that Manafort lied, because they met with Mueller's people this morning with the chief prosecutor, who is the guy who brought down Enron, uh, and and the, the lawyers for Manafort got a whole lot of surprises, it appears, because they now need another month. So, in in order to try to defend Manafort, so I don't think, Craig, that that Mueller is waiting for a change of administration. I think what Mueller is waiting for is to be sure he has all his uh, ducks lined up, all of his T's crossed and his I's dotted, and periods at the end of every sentence, and that he is certain, not perhaps. You know, I mean, that he is certain, yes. Uh, Not to an intelligence point of view, but to a judicial point of view, that there is or is not collusion. Now, let me ask you this. Could there be something else going on here? The president is uh, frequently refers to this as a witch hunt. Jerome Corsi, who's been a frequent guest on this show down through the years, has repeatedly referred to the Mueller investigation, particularly since the heat has been turned on him as a witch hunt. 
I have to wonder, though, is what we're seeing here less witch hunt and more like an onion, meaning Mueller was tasked with the responsibility of seeing if there was any, uh, you know, collusion, any any coming together, any meeting of the minds in relationship to uh, everything from the hacking of the DNC servers to the releasing of information, the attempt to try and, and influence the, uh, the November election of two years ago. And then as he's gone along, like the onion, it seems like he pulls back a layer and finds, oh, there's something here to investigate. Oh, wait, there's this other thing here. Now we find that there's a obstruction of justice going on or lying. So is, is, is this less witch hunt and more simply finding out that from the original investigation, it is opening up some of these rabbit trails, which at the end of the day, uh, as the special prosecutor, he is obligated to investigate? I, I think that's very clear. I think the fact that they got Cone uh, uh, some other time, uh, not not today, but some other time we should talk about why the IRS cannot catch these millionaires when if you or I make a $200 mistake, they're all over us like flies on flypaper. Um, but, but I think they wouldn't have caught Cone. I think there are many tentacles. Or if you want to use another analogy, this is like a rock garden. Every time you turn over a new, a rock, you find a new um, rock underneath it. And, yeah, I think that is one of the things that is taking so much time. I, Mueller has a reputation, not just for integrity, but for thoroughness. Uh, like Comey, he also has a background in taking apart um, uh, mafia gangs, which is always a question of, of getting your way up the food chain you know, one witness at a time. So I think he's being very methodical. I, you know, I just finished this morning reading the book Impeachment, um, which is an anthology um, with a foreword by, by um, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Engel, who is um, the head of the presidency center at uh, Southern Methodist University. And it deals with what did the constitutional fathers mean when, when they created the, the impeachment clause, because they knew George Washington would be the first president, the, you know, the precarian of perfection, as I like to call him. And then they, and then they knew that somewhere along the line they were going to have more perfidy. And what they were worried about was that bad presidents got dealt with by the electorate. In other words, if you didn't do a good job, you wouldn't get reelected. Okay, they didn't want impeachment to be a political instrument. And I think the Democrats are at risk of trying to make, um, fulfill a campaign promise uh, with a whole lot of talk about impeachment that, to her credit, Nancy Pelosi is trying to snuff out. Because I don't think we know. I I know that, that, that Mueller, if he thinks there's an impeachable offense, Craig, he will be extremely thorough in presenting that evidence. If he thinks, on the other hand, that there isn't a case, that there's a case of a lot of sloppiness or a lot of effort on the part of the Russians that were not reciprocated, which is one of the things you have to consider, then I think he's going to be very careful to tell the American people that as well. Well, and at the end of the day, wouldn't we prefer that this be a complete, thorough investigation and have him come back and report, 
you know, folks, we've spent, uh, you know, two years and X number of millions of dollars during this investigation, and we have concluded that there is no collusion. I, I, I would rather that than there be some sloppy, rushed judgment here just because somebody has a political agenda that they're trying to carry through. And I, so in my mind, thorough and slow uh, but I think that's being interpreted as, well, they're continuing on because that means if they don't find any something, they're looking for anything. I, I, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think that, that Robert Mueller, the longest-serving FBI director except for uh, Hoover. Hoover, yeah. um, that this man of such an unimpeachable character, this war hero, wants to be sure you know, he is a lawyer's lawyer. He wants to be certain that the information he gives the American people at the end of this process is thorough and complete and accurate. And, and I think we all need to kind of, you know, yes, we'd all love it to be over, you know, so we could get on with the business of governing. But I think we need to give him the time to do the job correctly. Well, then the other the other aspect of this, and this is what I find um, a little bit disquieting, this country unfortunately engaged in a major pivot. Uh, some of it began as far back as the 1970s, to be sure, Major League in the 1990s, where we went from a long-standing position that communism was an ideology that was uh, anathema to everything that we believe as Americans. Uh, it was a, a, a brutal political form where only a handful of people at the very top really benefit from it, and everybody else in that communal fashion all, you know, we get a chance to suffer equally together, essentially, is, is, is what it boils down to. So we invested years and years and years in a Cold War from 1945 until the collapse of the Soviet Union, beginning with uh, the, the falling of Romania in 1989, uh, in, in fighting this ideology and, and doing all that we could to prevent it from advancing. And suddenly, at some point, we pivoted, and we've forgotten all about this. And we've embraced communist China uh, to the point where now it's, we're, we're starting to pay the price economically. And, you know, at, at times when we should have you know, the old adage, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies even closer, at times when we should have taken that approach with Russia, we did not. And yet, all the while, we, we seem to have forgotten that while, yeah, they, they pivoted from pure communism to kind of this, this morphed version of, you know, quasi, we're, we're capitalist when it's convenient, we're democratic when it's convenient, but we still have the soul of a communist. And we've forgotten all of that. So it seemed to me that it would be important for us to understand that at many layers, Moscow is still the enemy. It was the enemy in 1950. It's still the enemy in, in 2018. And it would behoove us to make sure that there is as wide a separation between this administration and any other administration, American politics at all, as we can possibly Fine. I, I mean, I'm no fan of of uh, Senator McCarthy. In fact, I think the guy at many levels was was a uh, a red chasing monster that ruined a lot of lives needlessly. But I have to wonder what old Senator Joseph McCarthy would think if he saw what's going on today. He would feel in uh, in, in some ways he would feel uh, vindicated. Uh, 
you would say, aha, see, see those, I was right about those communists. But here's the point where, where I'm going to differ with you just slightly. I don't look at communism as being the problem. I look at totalitarian states as being the problem. I look at Xi and Putin as dictators of these enormous countries with um, lots of population and, unfortunately, nuclear weapons. And I view them as the danger. You know, I mean, uh, in fact, both neither of them is a communist. They're both oligarchs. They're, they've become extraordinarily wealthy um, at the expense of their people. So I don't, you know, I have trouble sometimes figuring out what the difference between a fascist and a um, communist is when, in fact, you are, it's all about you are the state. Yeah, yeah, they, they do tend after a while to, uh, to, to, to morph and blend, don't they? Yes, and so, and so when you start talking about giving $50 million penthouses to Putin so he'll let you build a building in Moscow, you know, I, I, the, the word communism in the Marxist sense kind of goes out. Yeah, that's it. It certainly does, doesn't it? Let's take a time out. We'll come back with some more thoughts. Joyce Cordy is with us today. She is the host of Reimagine America. You can catch her program every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Good alternative to a lot of the uh, the craziness of the talking head shows. The one thing that I like about her program is, while most of the shows these days walks you through what's wrong and where all the problems are. Very few provide solid answers, and that's something unique about her program, to not just tackle the tough issues, but also to provide many workable solutions. We take a time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. All right, let's check things out traffic-wise. Michael Bennett, what say ye? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with talk show host Joyce Cordy, founder and president of Reimagine America. Information on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Her program Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on her sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Uh, Joyce, I want to pivot to the changes coming in January. Um, (laughs) Congress in recent memory has not necessarily uh, been in line for any major land speed records when it comes to getting legislation passed, and it seems like sometimes they spend years uh, arguing over things, and then when they finally come to a decision and an agreement, it turns out to be something disastrous like uh, Obamacare, for example. And so I have to wonder, with the split now, come January, um, you've got to know that some Democrats are licking their chops and wanting some comeuppance for all that's transpired over the last two years. And I have to wonder now, are we just going to see nothing but fights and squabbles on Capitol Hill in an absolute stalemate for the next 24 months? I view it as a full employment act for all former federal attorneys <laughs> and members of Congress. <laughs> Yeah, that... you know, all be on cable news. 
seven by twenty-four. They they certainly will, and 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 everybody will be grousing in both directions. Now, uh, there's there's talk. The president today said he had a a good meeting uh, with uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. I don't know that they would necessarily agree, since there was a bit of a uh, a fight afterwards at the bill signing that was carried on uh, live television. Uh, the president continues to push for funding for the border wall. Nobody, of course, is standing up saying, wait a minute, I thought Mexico was going to pay for this thing. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's hoping for a smooth ending to this dispute. What do you think? Are we going to shut the government down here in time for Christmas? I I hate to tell you this, but Nancy would love it because Trump took it upon, closed himself in it today. You know, he was crystal clear with saying, I'll take, you know, the the uh, the heat for I will shut down the government if I don't get my $5 billion. Well, <clears throat> Donald, you're not getting your $5 million. But I hate to tell you there are 40 or 50 million Americans who need their Social Security checks. And um, and and so that's it's not a winning argument. It's not a winning argument, and it's not a solution. Wall the wall is not going to do anything. The wall is uh, you know we maybe you won't have to lob quite as much tear gas, but the wall is not the solution. Well, sadly, we've we've also come to know and and learn long ago that even when you build a wall, they manage to tunnel under it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, it may shock some in your audience. I agree with Schumer. We need border security, but border security is not a wall. Well, technically, we know how to secure the border, and we should do that. Um, but the, the real issue is to take away the disincentives in Latin America, you know, and this is not something new. It's that we aren't approaching it with the level of vigor that we should. Well, I've, um, I've long said the same thing, that, that if we had had our wits about us uh, and uh, lobbied for most favored nation trade status for, for China many years ago and instead said, you know, it's high time that we really think seriously about our neighbors to the south of us, uh, there would have been no better solution to this problem uh, than to be doing the kind of trade with Central and South America that we currently do with um, with China. Were that the case, uh, you probably might see the opposite happening, where people was, were, were heading south of the border uh, in order to make, uh, make a living down there because there's so many opportunities. Things are bad. I've been there. I, I was in Nicaragua a year ago, and the place has become a powder keg now. And from my perspective, I, I'm not at all surprised that people try to come here. Um, and, and clearly, there there's two issues at hand here. A, there aren't enough disincentives, and, and B, there not, aren't enough incentives to stay where they're at. Now, I'm not suggesting that America start writing huge checks and, and mailing them to South and Central America, but, you know, there are certainly things that we could be doing from a pro active standpoint to better conditions down there so that people are less attracted to coming over here. And this has been, this this was policy under the previous administration and, and uh, the previous two administrations, both the, the Bush administration and the Obama administration have advocated, one, more DEA help for drug enforcement and prevention interdiction, and two, more resources, not just American resources, but organization of American states 
to build a solid economy in what we call the Northern Triangle. And if we could do that, those people would not run away from home. Well, and, you know, I, I liken it to look at the problem we don't have in the northern border. And what's the difference between the two? Well, there's economic parity. Now, you know, is Mexico someday going to become equal to uh, the United States? I, I don't know. And, and that's not for me to try to, to argue or even figure out. I just know that one of the notable reasons why we don't have Canadians flocking to the United States looking for opportunities is because they have enough of their own in their homes. So... Giving uh, giving some thought to that aspect of the the equation here is is probably uh, an important thing. Uh, let's quickly before time runs out tonight, um, Joyce, uh, Chief of Staff. So John Kelly's heading for the exits at the end of the year. Uh, we thought for a moment that the Chief of Staff of the Vice President was going to uh, step into that role. Suddenly on Monday, it was not so. Um, he's denying that he's having a hard time finding good people. Uh, what do you make of all this? Nick Ayers is 36 years old. He's made $54 million as a camp, you know, as a political operative. He is not stupid. And taking that job has been um, career ending. There's a wonderful book out there that you and I should talk about some, some evening caught by, by a guy by the name of Rick Wilson, who was a political operative. This used to be Giuliani's operator. Okay, and he has written a book called Everything Trump Touches Dies. And Nick Ayers was well aware of that. So Nick Ayers, and when you talk about Chris Christie taking that job, give me a break. Oh, no, no, I can't see that for a nanosecond. Tell him, would, Mary Pat would, would hit him over the head with the, with the literally, with the um, rolling pin. I, I, think, I think that would be a, a, a political career in the White House that would be about as long-lasting as uh, Scaramucci, in fact, maybe even half as long. <laughs> Joyce Cordy, we always appreciate the time and your insights, and uh, if you want a good stretch to your imagination, join her for Reimagine America. Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. More information available on the web. Check it out. Podcasts and other resources, too, at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Six o'clock. So the little hand on the six and the big hand on the 12 tells me. Let's see what Michael Bennett tells all of us about traffic on this Tuesday. Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 